What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. Some exciting stuff to get into this week. Ahsoka, the latest Star Wars series, out now on Disney+. Plus. Can't wait to get into this. Blue Beetle, the latest DC film, is here. Also new music from Quavo, Geo from Twice, and Mick Jenkins. Make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. Get the pod. Just get it. And yeah. Next week, I'm going to release my Studio Ghibli film rankings. All 23 Studio Ghibli films out next week in celebration of Hayao Miyazaki's final film, The Boy and the Heron, releasing worldwide later this year, already out now in Japan. Very excited about that. And I'm also going to Japan. So no pod the following week, you know, on Labor Day. But when I get back, I'll have a lot to talk about. So in the meantime, make sure you subscribe youtube.com slash nostalgia pod let's get into it what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of geo's solo debut ep zone geo of course the leader of twice twice k-pop megastars people know twice been having a big year this year released uh their latest ep uh, or album ready to be released in japan or japanese music as well on their biggest tour international tour yet a stadium tour twice is a massive group and they're truly like still as popular as they've ever been and yet the solo material has been uh, few and far between of course nyan was the first twice member to go solo about a year ago last year a little over a year ago and that uh debut i'm nyan i love that was actually my favorite k-pop album of 2022 really infectious, really uh, successful drop, and was awesome. And I think on, one, and on the other hand, Nyan's rapid success with the solo music put a lot of, I think, pressure on the rest of TWICE members with solo aspirations, just because that's a high bar. That was a very successful first TWICE solo, you know? Gio, of course, the leader of TWICE, famously has been a K-pop trainee since before her teenage years been in the game a long time at last delivering solo music zone seven songs 22 minutes notably geo has uh, songwriting credits on six of the seven songs and also has some composition credits in terms of the musical arrangement as well awesome to see and i thought this was pretty solid i would say not that it needs to be compared to it but i like the nyan release a little bit more but i thought zone was certainly uh good and uh, pretty fun. And I think what's kind of awesome about this is how Geo is giving you something a bit outside the traditional Twice mold. The Nyan EP, like most Twice music, very bright, very upbeat, very lively. But you kind of understand what that Twice sound is. Geo has some of that on its own, but also goes in some different directions, tries some different genre bends, some diff- different vibes than you get from when she's a part of the Twice Ensemble. And I think that's really cool, and that's what you want to hear from you know, someone going solo who's been part of a group for so long, right? Is to just uh, experiment and do things creatively that you feel like you have not yet uh, been fulfilled in doing. And I think some of these uh, ventures go better than others, but overall, that's the kind of sentiment you want to see from someone who clearly was very involved in the creation of this project. Uh, right off the bat, of course, you have track one, Killing Me Good, lead single has a music video out now and i think that one's really fun uh 
just kind of a great beat drop, fun bop type song. Very catchy hook. I'd say like the lyrics are um, a bit simple, you know, perhaps a little bit underwritten, but at the end of the day, it's a very catchy song. Um, and throughout all of this, I think Geo's vocals are just incredibly strong, incredibly memorable. And that's probably the most consistent thing about this EP is that she's, her singing voice is very strong throughout this. I think on some of the songs, there's a really nice, like, rich texture to how she sings and really fits out, fit, fits in on some of these songs. You know, going back to uh, the final track, track seven, Nightmare, which has, uh, she's been performing parts of that on tour in the lead up to this release. Nightmare has these big, loud, passionate vocals from Gio. But also that song is so cool because those big drums really fit to this kind of like, it's almost like a bigger like stadium sound, but it's a darker sound. Again, it's very untwice-like, and that's just cool. Uh, track two was not something I expected to hear. That's talking about it featuring none other than 24K Golden. I never thought a member of Twice and 24K Golden would be linking up on a K-pop solo album. But that's just, that's what happened. Uh, very random, no doubt. That's an English song. And while I think they actually fit well together vocally, like it didn't seem jarring when 24K Golden came in, which was a bit surprising. And, and Gia's vocals are good in general. I just felt that the hook was quite lackluster, and it was just kind of a, you know, mediocre song. It's all right. Closer, track three, I like the rhythm on that one. Uh, Wishing on You, Geo really hits that higher register um, in the chorus. I really like that. Uh, I think my favorite song on this, though, Killing Me Good, I like, but my favorite song would be Don't Want to Go Back, this duet with Haza. And, man, I think the snare drum on that's really awesome, awesome tempo there. But this the passion vocals from Gio, again, like that the texture to her voice really shines through in a song like that. That's been the song I've revisited the most so far. I really like that one. Um, and then track uh, the six track room is just okay. But yeah, I think like clearly this there's enough here to be invested in like Geo's solo music. Obviously, the Twice members read up their contracts at the end of or you know 2022 and are still roaring successfully together as a group so it's not like they're going solo but you know i think the strength of this music overall for brand new first solo material and also the fact that geo is willing to uh, try new things sonically be directly involved in the music composition and try and do things that are interesting or at least different uh that's pretty commendable and that's what you want to see in k-pop music a genre that at times can get stagnant or safe so i i like zone shout out geo let me know though what was your favorite song on zone and for more k-pop reviews more music reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of mick jenkins fourth album the patience man i've always been a mick fan chicago rapper kind of came up around the same time as chance the rapper part of that really strong story like Chicago jazz rap wave that we got, you know, in the early 2010s, mid 2010s through now. And I've always liked Mick, you know, he's never been the most famous of that group, but I think he's always been really consistent in his musical output and the quality of that output. And the patience I actually think is a appealing slight tweak to the Mick Jenkins sound. He's certainly not reinventing the wheel and what he's done, but he's doing one thing notably different, which is just 
giving you a lot more of an aggressive delivery than he has in the past. Not quite as jazzy. And at times he could almost be, I think, understated as a rapper, despite the fact that he has such a rich, deep voice that he never sounds understated. But now he's actually putting a lot more behind those bars, it sounds like. And I don't know, like that extra energy, like I really feel it in the music on the patience. This is a brief listen, 11 songs, 28 minutes. But I think I like this more than the last two Mick projects. And it's pretty good. You know, I think um, right off the bat, track one, Michelin Star, reminds you of the kind of rapper Mick is, where he's about that that action with the bars. You know, just right off the bat, like, I, Speaker's Knock, but I didn't get in by my lonely. Of course, that double entendre is a acknowledgement of the late Speaker Knockers and his most famous song, Lonely. That stood out to me right away. It's a great song in general he has, has here. And again, just an aggressive flow. And then from there, we just have... Uh, Laundry list of A-plus features, types, the type of rappers that you want Mick to work with. Freddie Gibbs, Benny the Butcher, Jid, as well as his Chicago compatriot, Vic Mensa, some, one of his peers. They come up, came up together, you know. Uh, of those first three, Gibbs, Butcher, and Jid, uh, the Jid song was a single. Sitting Ducks with Benny, that is clearly the standout to me. I think that's the best song on the, uh, the, the album here. I mean, the Butcher coming, man. He's never bad. In fact, he's always great. And they actually just complement each other like, like I don't know, like white on rice. Like, it sounds so good. I think the drums on that song really, really hit. You know, obviously, like, Jid and, Gib- and Gibbs aren't bad. They're good. But those songs didn't quite grab me nearly as much as the one with Benny. I'm not sure. Um, after that, we have songs without features. Uh, 007, a really hard, aggressive flow. 2004, really memorable as well. And then you have uh, Roy G. Biv which actually really I thought was quite clever just because the way Mix rapping all these uh, references to colors and shades and visuals, you know, obviously the, the, the acronym in the title about the colors we know, the color wheel people know. So that was pretty impressive. That was a good one. Um, shout out to Vic Mensa on Farm to Table. He's got an album coming out in a few weeks. I thought that song's just okay, though. Guapanese one, the single's pretty good. Um, yeah, like, I, the thing is, like, I don't have like a whole lot more to add. Like, Mick went harder than he normally does, and the results were good. You know, I think more than anything, like thinking about this, thinking about a Vic Mensa album coming up. We just got a No Name album a few weeks ago. Thinking about like that jazzy Chicago sound that came to define Chicago hip hop over the last, you know, ten years. It's been interesting reflecting on that because I think. You know, before that, of course, Chicago, uh, Chicago Drill, the original Drill, came into being. And then you had this jazz wave take over for a long time. But I guess the timing syncs up with as the Chance the Rapper uh, rocket ship began the crest due to uh, issues with his music critically, as we all know. Um, it just seems like there hasn't been quite as much attention or love put on this, this sound of Chicago. And we kind of drifted back towards you know not not quite drill but of course little dirk one of the one of the drill forefathers have never been more famous or more successful polo g uh in a similar vein very big you know people aren't necessarily checking for the jazz guys anymore and no name obviously she gets a lot of attention but not always for her music it's partially due to her celebrity and her um ability to willingness to speak her mind right so 
it's been nice, I think, to have someone like Mick Jenkins, who pretty consistently has been dropping projects. And even if he never became as famous as perhaps he wanted to be one day, the music's still there. And even if like the rap world isn't necessarily like checking for that jazz Chicago sound the way we once did, if you do check for it, there's still a lot of good stuff here. And I think Mick is arguably the one leading that way in in, in a certain regard. So shout out Mick Jenkins. Always been a fan of his. Um, I, I'll take this opportunity to once again shout out the unreleased Chance the Rapper coloring book song that perhaps would have made made the tape one day or album one day, but uh, leaked and Chance to basically disown the song. Lily has performed it featuring Alex Wiley and Mick. Amazing song. Chance is great on it, and the Mick feature is amazing. Check that out on YouTube. Great song. But honestly, like, happy for Mick Jenkins that he seems to be like keeping it moving, doing his thing, because his thing is good. His thing is enjoyable. So let me know how you feel about the patience for Mick Jenkins. What was your favorite song? And for more rap reviews, more music reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Quavo's second solo album, Rocket Power. Of course, this is Quavo's first solo album in five years, and of course, Quavo's first album since his nephew and former Migos uh, compatriot Takeoff, of course, was tragically killed towards the end of 2022. Now, in the interim, you know, actually, because before Takeoff had passed, Migos had been pretty fraught, right? Offset had basically left the group. Uh, Quavo and Takeoff released Only Built for Infinity Links as a duo project. And then right after that, Takeoff was killed, obviously. And, you know, since then, Quavo s- saluted uh, Takeoff at the Grammys in terms of a, uh, you know, a homage to memorial type performance, you know, like the family opera mask on, pretty uh, powerful visual. And then more recently, at the BET Awards, Quavo and Offset seemingly buried the hatchet and performed Bad and Bougie together in honor of Takeoff. And that was a moment that obviously went very viral, almost brought a tear to my eye because like, that was just so awesome to hear. And, you know, I think one, you feel for them as people and family, you know, losing someone so close to them, but also just, you know, I think like, like musically, it, it had been clear long before they had started to split or take off past that. The Migos were always better together. You know, we got one sole album from each of them. Offset has one coming up pretty soon as well, his second. But it was clear that Migos were at their best when they were doing doing their thing. And, you know, I'm not really sure how much of it is label issues of quality control and money issues and things of that nature. It's not super clear to us. But either way, Quavo has released Rocket Power, as the name suggests, as the feature list where posthumous takeoff is all over this, this is a uh, love letter to his late nephew, his brother for life, takeoff. And it's clearly better than uh, Quavo Hancho, the debut solo album from Quavo. It's much better than uh, Huncho Jack, the collab album Quavo did with Travis Scott a few years ago. This is, I, I think, shows you the appeal of Quavo as a rapper and what has often made a lot of his lackluster features in the last, you know, five years stand out because the talent was always so prevalent and just felt like we just need Quavo to lock in in a certain way. It's unfortunate that it had to be something so tragic to cause this, of course. But I think even the songs on Rocket Power that aren't about takeoff are just fun. 
Quavo does sound rejuvenated on those as well. So I liked Rocket Power quite a bit. It's long, 18 songs, 51 minutes. We could have definitely trimmed some of this, but I mean, there's a lot to like about it. Um, and let's just go right into it. Uh, Patty Cake. Goddamn. That's a banger. <laughs> Is that track two? Takeoff sounds so good on that. Uh, steals the song, basically. But Quavo holds his own as well. To me, that's just like the that's the number one banger on this. Sounds fantastic. Um, really liked it. Then right after that, you have Mama Told Me, which is a fire verse from Quay. Uh, energetic delivery. That's what we've always wanted and has been missing more lately. Is Quavo, We want Quavo to commit it on the mic. Because when he is, and whether he's using auto-tune or not, uh, if he's energetic, it really shines through. There are songs later in the track list where he is using auto-tune, but he's using it really well because I think the rest of his delivery is uh, coming through as well. So Mama Told Me, also awesome. Uh, Who Whit Me, uh, right after that. I thought the hook was a bit annoying on that, but then a few songs later you have Where Can I Start, awesome use of auto-tune. Wall to Wall I thought was good. Uh, Turn Your Click Up. Really great future feature. I'm, I've never been the biggest future guy. He's always been hit or miss for me. Very catchy hook, the very catchy future performance. I think at this point, the album starts to get a little long. You know, um, back where it begins, take off feature again, future again. Take isn't nearly as memorable on this as he is in Patty Cake, but alas, still nice to hear him. You have a Young Thug on Focus. Sounds pretty good. Stain right after that. Uh, I thought that one was pretty awesome. Fun beat from Quavo, and he's able to hold his own. You have someone really hot rising quick like Baby Drill on the song, but Quavo holds his own. I think it's pretty good. Um, Rocket Power, towards the end, the title track. Perhaps some of the best storytelling Quavo's done, certainly the best he's done in a long time. You know, I suppose we could look back to like the no-label mixtape days, but man, that one really stood out to me in terms of Quavo just talking about his life and his come up and his family and things like that and using auto-tune but using it well. Like, that... I think a song like hearing a song like that and hearing something just so committed to as Patty Cake or last year with the Takeoff album, a song like uh, Hotel Lobby, of course, which became a big hit. When Quavo's locked in, he's great. And, you know, I think when Migos really blew up in the lead up to and following Culture, initially Quavo was held up as the Migo, right? The hottest feature, the most desirable feature, goddamn. 2016, the only feature that mattered was Quavo feature, right? We're a long time removed from that. I think since that that moment has happened, we got the other culture albums that weren't nearly as successful. Um, Offset really, I think, kind of lapped ahead of Quavo in terms of being a rapper. And Takeoff, all, all, you know, perhaps um, belatedly got a lot of love for being a really strong rapper as well, even if he just wasn't someone who's really going to brag and talk about himself. Obviously a soft-spoken guy. And at that point, I think a lot of people had Quavo as their least favorite Migo, at least musically, right? He's a fun celebrity too. But the, uh, hearing Rocket Power and hearing him on some of the best songs in Culture 3, hearing him on Only Bill for Inc- uh, Infinity Links last year, like he's got it in, in him. And I just hope he can uh, continue to find uh, inspiration to make like really committed music in the future again when, we're not, when you're not making something directly about you know your fallen brother. Um, curious how the Offset album goes. You know, I can't imagine it's nearly as much about Takeoff, given 
that takeoff was seemingly closer with Quavo around the time of his death. We'll see. Um, and then yeah, the last track, which I skipped over, uh, Greatness, I think is just great rapping from Quavo as well. That was the lead single here. But um, yeah, shout out Quavo. Again, sad that it had to be tragedy to get some of his best work um, in, in a few years. But alas, that's, that's what happened. RP Takeoff, RP The Rocket. Um, just watch that BT Awards performance again. Just the love in that room for Bad and Bougie. Watching Quavo and Offset perform that song like they've done countless times. They could do that shit in their sleep. Again, so happy that they were able to link like that. And I hope that down the line, maybe they'll make some music together again. Even if they're not going to unite as Migos, quote unquote, maybe they'll feature on each other's songs one day. We'll see. But in the meantime, that's Rocket Power. Let me know. How'd you feel about Quavo's second solo album? What was your favorite song? And for more rap reviews or music reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Blue Beetle, the latest DC Comics film from Warner Brothers. This film directed by Angel Manuel Soto, probably best well known for Charm City Kings. And Blue Beetle uh, is being held up as the first, you know, uh, Latino-led superhero film and there's a lot to get into with that i think that's probably the best element about the movie honestly and blue beetle notably infamously is the second to last dc film in the dceu uh, with aquaman 2 to follow later in the year before we get the dc studios reboot starting in 2025 with superman legacy under the helm of james gunn and i'll get into more about the dc issues with management and timing and things of that nature but blue beetle you know i think ultimately was saved due to the fact that it was originally pitched as an hbo max film but then switched to a theatrical plan that saved this film from not suffering the same fate as batgirl which was unreleased and written off for attacks right off instead thankfully that did not happen to blue beetle i think blue beetle is pretty solid i think it's okay I think there are good things to, about it and some kind of annoyingly poor things about it as well. But it's a solid entry. I think it's better than Shazam 2. It's better than Black Adam. I like The Flash more than this. I like The Suicide Squad more than this. So it's not fantastic, but it's okay. And unfortunately, it seems like the you know, the box office might prevent this movie from getting a sequel. But of course, this movie's been in a weird position where it was talked about as being a DCEU movie, but Gunn had said that the Blue Beetle could return. All that's been kind of unclear. I wonder if the box office will change some minds about that plan. We'll see. Um, you also wonder how much of this box office is about the Blue Beetle and like the trailers and the, uh, about the movie itself versus just general awareness of the film. Of course, the cast cannot promote this due to the strike. And the DC brand has been in a spiral in the last year, which is AM2 and The Flash really underperforming, especially at the worldwide box office that continued with Blue Beetle, unfortunately. It seems like it's a compounding effect, and that's unfortunate. We'll see what happens with Aquaman. But Blue Beetle, you know, I think on one hand, there's a lot of like familiar tropey elements to it. This is a straight up superhero origin story. You think about the tenets of a superhero origin story, the things that happen in superhero origin stories, you get them in this. There's a lot of uh, a lot a lot of uh, things that immediately latch onto and look familiar, you know. And I think 
along those lines. You have Susan Sarandon as uh, Victoria Cord. Very poor villain. Really kind of a phoned-in performance by Sarandon, but just an uninteresting villain as well. You know, at least her henchman has a little bit more under the hood. But really, the star of the show with this film is the family dynamic with Jaime Reyes, who becomes the Blue Beetle. Jaime Reyes, of course, played by Jolo Maradueña, who, of course, was one of the big breakouts for for Cobra Kai on Netflix. And you know the Jaime Reyes, the Reyes family dynamic, and the fact that his whole family has like sizable ensemble parts, roles in the film, in the storytelling. You know, uh, when Jaime becomes the Blue Beetle, it's in front of his family. It's not like, you know, in a back alley or a spider bite that no one else saw happen. You know, it's different. And the family is a big part of the story. And on top of that, it is a Latino family. And I think it's really awesome that you have like something clearly targeting the Latino film going community because that is an underserved population at the box office, despite the fact that Latino theater going uh, is a big chunk of the domestic box office and the, you know, the domestic uh, number of tickets sold. So that's awesome. And, 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 you know, about time type thing. And thankfully, like I think culturally it comes across as, you know, Latino having Latino lens without having like a preachy or, um, kind of unfair point of view from the film. It's, it doesn't come across as, um, you know, it's not like taking advantage of the fact that it's about a specific community. Like it actually comes across in a genuine way. And I think that's, that's what I, mo- I most appreciate about the movie, honestly, because again, like the villain's not very good. The origin story is very familiar and tropey and predictable. Um, also kind of unsurprisingly, everything with the blue beetle and the scarab and how, the blue beetle powers work and how this uh, foreign alien, um, you know, creature technology, sentient being of some kind, how how that all works and that beings kind of lack of motivations and uh, all of that is, is very undefined in blue beetle, the film. And that was just kind of a bit perplexing to me. The movie is very uninterested in all of that. Thankfully, it's at least interested in the family dynamics, and that's something that you can latch onto and enjoy. You know, I think um, Jolo as Jaime is solid. He's he's likable. He's a bit precocious. You know, it's kind of like Tom Holland casting, I guess. I don't I don't think he's he does not given a ton of great scenes. To be honest, I wouldn't necessarily call him like the standout cast member, but he's like convincing enough in the role that you know in a different world maybe it'd be cool if he could just be 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 the blue beetle moving forward but who knows if that's going to happen you know the rest of the family you know his uh his sister is pretty funny i enjoyed her um barrio (laughs) sorry not not mario george lopez is jaime's uncle rudy who's like a prepper paranoid anti-big brother type guy really enjoyable um, the grandmother figure and revelations about her is pretty fun too. But the most significant other cast member would have to be uh, Bruna Marquezni as Jenny Cord. Uh, that you know, she's a big star in Brazil. This is her first Hollywood performance. She's pretty nice, pretty fun. Um, it's quite perplexing, or I guess implausible, that 
this like billionaire, you know, mid twenties woman somehow ends up falling for Jaime by the end. Like it's, you gotta like kind of roll with some of the punches with this. Like some of it kind of bends credulity, you know? Um, But I actually, I I did, I did kind of enjoy them. You know, I think like the chemistry is like so, so in the film, but it felt like it could eventually build to something. If there's more movies, I don't know. Um, Yeah. I think um, the action also kind of, stands out for being quite inconsistent like sometimes the lighting just doesn't seem great uh the effects they're okay but like you're not watching any like amazingly you know animated scenes like it's pretty rote like cgi beat-em-up stuff anyway so like i didn't really mind that it was like only looked okay because it's not like it was super interesting action um you know i think that the fact that this might have been on hbo max in one point of its existence perhaps speaks to that you know it's not a super expensive superhero movie i believe the budget was only like a hundred ish million yeah 104 million which i guess makes it even more disappointing that the movie's underperforming so much at the box office again the, the worldwide box office was under 50 million you know 25 million domestic like unfortunately even with a low budget that's not going to get it done you know um but yeah i'd say just as i said before the stuff with the Latino culture and nothing that, you know, when there's the court industries raid the Reyes home that is, I think filmed in a smart way, kind of invoking a um, police raid on Latino homes, you know, kind of invoking the treatment of undocumented people in this country that uh, comes across. Well, um, gentrification being a, a kind of key plot line, the early parts of the movie, I think that's done pretty effectively. It's cool to, I guess, be in a, pantera city which is just uh a different location in the dc world than we've been uh recently you know it's not metropolis or gotham or central city it's not kind of dark and dreary it's actually basically a stand-in uh for miami i think is what we're supposed to take away from that but uh sorry palmera city uh but yeah i think the cultural stuff the family relationships when the movie's actually just spending time with the family and having them play off each other, that's the most enjoyable stuff about it. And the rest of it kind of comes across almost like how some of like the mid, mid-level mid DC stuff or the mid-level Sony superhero stuff comes across, where it's like, yeah, you kind of understand all of those beats. But at least Blue Beetle has uh, that cultural awareness or cultural cachet, I think, that makes it stand out. Because uh, if that wasn't there at all, I think this would be a pretty down the middle just mediocre origin film that you know whether it's fair or not the audience tolerance for such fair has evolved we've gotten so many superhero movies in the last you know 20 years uh standards change standards raise and what might have worked and been okay for a franchise starter back in the day is not necessarily still the case today you know but if you're thinking about things to latch on to there's some familiarity between this and how the first Ant-Man handles its ensemble. And I think that's the best thing about it. But we'll see what happens with Blue Beetle. I'm not exactly getting my hopes up that this movie is going to somehow lead into the next version of the DC storytelling. Given this poor box office, I think it's unfortunately best just to wipe that slate clean and tough break for Jolo. But alas, I think that's where we are. But let me know. How do you feel about Blue Beetle? And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Ahsoka. 
the new Star Wars live action series on Disney Plus. It's been a long time coming, but we made it. Ahsoka, the series from Dave Filoni, it's finally here. And I think people have been exceedingly uh, excited for this series ever since Ahsoka debuted in The Mandalorian Season 2 in live action, played by Rosario Dawson. And we realized that Dave Filoni would be showrunning this Ahsoka series. And after watching the first two episodes, I think a lot of people's hopes have been realized in the sense that the Ahsoka series is straight up a sequel to Star Wars Rebels, of course, the much-beloved Disney XD animated series from Filoni, the last time Filoni ran a show. Of course, his follow-up to The Clone Wars, where Ahsoka debuted, you know, gosh, almost 15 years ago at this point. So it's been a lot of hype for this, and me, I'm a big Rebels fan. I think Rebels, the way that story concludes in animated form is very special, the journey that you go on with those characters, the journey you go on with Ahsoka, who, uh, who gets brought into the Rebels mix, I think is really important. Some amazing lore elements. I'm not going to spoil anything with Rebels. I think a lot of people are deciding, hey, I think I want to catch up on this. And it makes a lot of sense because the core cast of uh, Rebels is directly involved with Ahsoka here. In this first epi- the first two episodes, we spent a lot of time with Sabine Wren, now played by uh, Natasha Lou Bordizo. And of course, Sabine was part of that ensemble in Rebels. Uh, we also see uh, General Hera Syndulla, now played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Hera and Sabine were huge starring members of Rebels, and they are seeking the erstwhile star of Rebels, Ezra Bridger, who uh, went off into wild space uh, and disappeared with Grand Admiral Thrawn in the finale of Rebels. So Ezra, on one hand, is a MacGuffin for the series, for people that aren't Rebels fans, people don't don't have a connection with that character, but for Rebels fans, people that know the story and understand the threads that are being picked up with Ahsoka, it's, I think, really exciting stakes, because it's it's a story people have been invested in, wanted to see continued, and you know, I think there's a lot of goodwill coming into a show like this because of Filoni's just, I think, touch and clear love for these characters. I mean, the Dave Filoni's track record with the way the Clone Wars came into its own in its second half. Of course, the final season of Clone Wars, you know, getting resurrected and coming out just a few years ago, how beloved Rebels is. And now, you know, Ahsoka, people are riding high on the Filoni high. And now that we know he's connected to a live action movie, we hope does in fact go through with Lucasfilm. Um, times are good. You know, but in the meantime, this Ahsoka premiere really just felt like home to me as a big Rebels fan. But I think even if you're not necessarily a Rebels fan, don't really know who Hera is or Sabine is, and they're brand new to you, and you only know Ahsoka from her appearance in Mandalorian Season 2, her appearance in the Book of Boba Fett, I still think there's enough here to engage you. Because um, I think what they're doing is done quite well. So just kind of going into this two-episode premiere, of course, spoilers... Right off the bat, a brand new thing with Star Wars TV and Disney+. Plus, We got an opening crawl for the first time. The first time we saw a Star Wars opening crawl since the rise of Skywalker. Uh, it's been a long time. That was pretty cool. And then that opening set piece, you know, again, we see a Star Cruiser come into frame. Again, just like a new hope. And we see two new characters, uh, Balin and Shin. Balin played by 
Ray Stevenson, chin played by Ivana Sock. No. New characters, force users, force wielders, and they are attacking a New Republic ship to free uh, New Republic prisoner Morgan Elsbeth. Of course, Morgan Elsbeth was who Ahsoka at- uh, defeated, you know, captured in her debut episode of Mandalorian Season 2 with the help of, of course, Din Djarin, the Mandalorian. And it's kind of fun to pick up this thread, right, kind of right where it left off. And, you know, I, I really enjoy this opening set piece because Balin, in particular, his attack is definitely meant to evoke uh, Vader's attack on Leia's ship, Tantive Four, you know, in Rogue One and A New Hope. Um, even the interiors look kind of similar with the white. Um, it, it's familiar, but it's like it's like loving homage. And, you know, we're kind of off from there. Uh, meanwhile, we switch over to Ahsoka, who's on some unknown world, you know, completing this puzzle, seeking this um, device, which we learn is a star map. And we learn that this is a star map that'll help discover the location of Thrawn and also Ezra, because we know they're together, assumingly. You know, it's fun watching Ahsoka kind of complete this puzzle, um, just kind of in general, like the white colors of those columns and that like kind of like desolate, like ruined world look really awesome. And then we get into this duel with uh, Ahsoka versus these assassin droids with like electrostats, kind of like a magnet guard nod there. And that was pretty fun. They'd uh, self-destruct. Ahsoka escapes with the help of her, her companion and pilot, uh, Yang, which is the lightsaber droid from the Clone Wars. Apparently he survived. We don't know how. I'm sure that'll be a fun comic one day. But Yang survived and is with Ahsoka. Uh, voiced by David Tennant. I think it's a really fun kind of like uh, dry voice performance for Tennant as the droid. It's pretty fun. But yeah, definitely like like just not a funny poll. Like the um, Huyang was the uh, ancient droid. He'd been the Jedi forever and helped the Padawans construct their lightsabers for the first time. Now he's with Ahsoka. Pretty fun. Um, you know, from there, you get like, I think, fun nods. Of course, the, the call sign for Ahsoka is Fulcrum. That's a rebel's nod. We get reference to Home One, of course, the Rebellion's flagship, all the way back from the original trilogy. Uh, we see Hera, and they have a briefing uh, in the Home One briefing room, of course, a big nod to Return of the Jedi. Again, a few less people in this briefing room this time around. And uh, we see the uh, the Jedi, or, uh, you know, Force wielders, Balin and Shin. And I think it's fun how, like, later in the episode, the way they kind of determine who these people are is... Huyang's ability to like analyze lightsabers because he was involved in the creation of all that with the Order, figuring out that Balin's skull is in fact a former Jedi, disappeared at the end of the Clone Wars, evidently survived, seemingly went off to the unknown region, seems to be now dallying with the dark side. Of course, the lightsabers have been purged, they are red. Is he a mercenary? We don't really know, but interesting. I think Ray Stevenson, with that performance, is pretty, pretty fun. You know, he's someone who I think has always been a pretty nice presence in film unfortunately just tragically passed away i believe in his late 50s just this summer uh, unfortunately but it was a nice nod to have ray stevenson come back into star wars he was the voice of gar saxon um in clone wars and now he's in live action uh that's cool similarly uh you had clancy brown reprising his role as a rider asadi on lothal he was of course the voice of rider in rebels like to see that as well but uh, yeah, I think it's th- this premiere is interesting because you have I think intriguing new elements, really Balin and Shin, 
Morgan kind of being a more interesting character than I expected because we have this reveal that she is in fact a uh, night sister of Dathomir, a surviving night sister. As far as we know at this time, the only night sisters that are still alive would be Morgan Elspeth now and uh, Marin from the Star Wars Jedi Survivor video games. Um, that was unexpected. I did not see that coming. That was a cool nod. We found out that the world that uh, Ahsoka found the map was in fact an ancient Dathomiri world from long ago. Very interesting. Um, but yeah, like that central conflict where Balin and Shin seem to be working in service of Morgan, who in turn are working to get back the Thrawn. And Thrawn will be the galvanizing force to unite these Imperial remnants and take back the galaxy from the fledgling New Republic. And, and the, the opening crawl suggests a, a lot of this as well. And that's a really solid hook. And, you know, in the second episode, you get some familiar themes that we just got in The Mandalorian Season 3, which is that at this time, the transition from Galactic Empire to New Republic uh, it takes time. It's gray. It's, it's honestly a realistic depiction of, of the transfer of power, such as that would be, where a lot of people that were working for the Empire are now working for the New Republic because it's a logistical manpower type thing. So as a result, there might be people in positions of power that are actually sympathizers to the old cause, thus the bad guys, right? It's a familiar theme. We just saw that in Mandalorian Season 3, but I like seeing that. I think it kind of makes the world feel more lived in at this time. Um, yeah, pretty nice. Let's see. Um, of course, Sabine, right? We see Sabine. Um, you know, another interesting reveal, uh, which is completely new, was that Ahsoka had attempted to train Sabine as an apprentice, even though she doesn't actually have I don't think, much of any force aptitude. Um, and, and didn't work well. Like, they then butting heads. They seem to have broken it off, and there's a bit of a cool relationship between the two. really like that addition. That was not something I saw coming. Um, I like the fight that Shin and Sabine have, where Shin and her assassin droids take back the star map, and thus, after, after Sabine is able to unlock it with her artistic eye, that's something that like that's a nod to rebels and and Sabine being a an artist, right? You don't like understand that like one off line and thus explanation of her abilities if you didn't watch rebels. Obviously, it's something you can yada yada and watch. Oh, Sabine can figure out how to open the map, but it makes more sense if you know how the character is. Um, funny enough, I really like in episode two where um, uh, Shin and Balin they go to this planet that the map told them to go to and Morgan meets them there and Morgan through her force uh, abilities as a night sister is able to manipulate the map in this location and to make like a more like 3D like all encompassing like uh, spherical map which in turn tells them where they need to go um, to find Thrawn more or less. It's, it's um fun nod I think to like the Star Forge in Knights of the Old Republic Similar kind of concept. In general, I think a star map, just visually on screen, really fun science fiction manifestation of, you know, future technology. It's always cool. Turns out they're building something called the Eye of Cyan. Looks to be a big hyperspace ring, similar to um, the hyperspace ring that Obi-Wan uses with the Jedi Starfighter in Episode 2. Basically one of those on, on steroids. Um, they, they basically were secretly able to build a series of hyperspace engines for this big ring on Corellia under the New Republic's nose. 
and they're going to use that ring presumably to go to where Thrawn is somewhere out in wild space, unknown regions, wherever. Um, cool. And I think she thinks it's pretty plausible that the New Republic wouldn't realize that there were people working for them but had ulterior motives. That's uncovered by Hera and Ahsoka. And in the process, you get this duel between Ahsoka, uh, this is on Corellia, this duel between Ahsoka, uh, assassin droid, and this Inquisitor, former Inquisitor called Merrick, so we're told. Um, very curious about his identity. Is he just a brand new Inquisitor we hadn't seen before? Is he an Inquisitor we've seen in the background or in comics? Could be the only Inquisitor left. Um, I guess maybe Riva, we know, is still alive as of several years before this. She's never, she hasn't been killed, but it seems like most of the Inquisitors are gone at this point. And either way, this Merrick guy, he's not being an Inquisitor for Vader. You know, he's gone. All the Inquisitors are gone, so seem to just kind of come into the service of Morgan and Balin and thus Thrawn. Kind of interesting. I hope that's answered fully, but that was a fun duel. Um, I really like how much like we get to see like ships in atmosphere and like low like you know like on planets and stuff. Like I think the speeder bike stuff on Lothal with Sabine looks great. Watching Hera fly the Phantom up into atmosphere, tracing down the uh, the ship with the hyperspace hyperdrive that was pretty epic. Really fun to see Chopper, of course, in live action again. Um, the, the shuttle that Shin's flying when they pick up Merrick at the end there after the fight with Ahsoka. That looks really cool. It's fluid. It's fast. It feels like Star Wars. I really liked it. Um, yeah, what else? Um, <laughs> I really liked in the duel at the end when uh, Merrick's escaping, Shin's picking him up. Uh, Merrick's, you know, double-bladed, cylindrical Inquisitor lightsabers, like, flying back. And Ahsoka has this, like, super nonchalant, like, shoulder shimmy just to, so it, it doesn't hit her. Love the swag on that. Of course, fun to be on Corellia in general. Famously, of course, the homeworld of Han Solo. I believe we've never seen it in live action until now. That was cool. Um, I think the assassin droids have been fun through these two episodes as fighters. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think just in general, like, super exciting where this is going. We know Lars Mikkelsen is reprising his voice work now in live action as Thrawn. Can't wait for that. Um, Thrawn in general a character with true gravitas, whether you know him originally from the Heir of the Empire, Timothy Zahn books, where he was basically the introduction, the beginning of the Star Wars expanded universe and the introduction to of to many to extra Star Wars storytelling in addition to the films way back, you know. Obviously, Thrawn has been redone in new canon, had a huge piece in Star Wars Rebels and thus has a direct relationship um, with... Sabine and Hera and Ezra, of course. So it's very exciting to see Thrawn in this. And I think a lot of people, myself included, are kind of feeling like the Dave Filoni live action movie that was announced could perhaps be the culmination of the Mandalorian storytelling, the Ahsoka storytelling, the Book of Boba Fett storytelling as well, yada yada. All that would probably be culminating into a movie about Thrawn featuring all these characters. I would assume that would be a really... I assume that's where it's going. I think that would be a really cool way to kind of wrap up all this story, you know, in terms of this storytelling work that's taking place after Return of the Jedi, before The Force Awakens, and putting, like, a, I think, a defined endpoint on the storytelling that began at Disney+. Plus. That's what I want to see. Um, 
we'll see what happens. I think it's probably the most likely of those live action movies to happen just because Lucasfilm isn't going to do Dave Filoni like that. You know, he's been the most consistent creative force at Lucasfilm apart from George Lucas himself. So, and of course, George is no longer worked there. So um, that's exciting. But in the meantime, I think the show looks great. As Rebels fan, it felt so good to be back. It felt like the old times. It felt like home. The trailers basically revealed very little that we didn't see in these first two episodes. You always like to see that. You like to have that surprise. Um, obviously, we know we're going to see Ezra. Wouldn't be shocked if we see Zeb again, given that he had the cameo in Mandalorian Season 3. Um, unsure. Don't really need to see Din and Grogu. I'm not really expecting that. Um, I think we have enough recognizable characters people are invested in between Ahsoka, the Rebels people, and of course Thrawn. So, yeah, I mean, I'd love to know more about Merrick. Of course, Balin seems like someone with some substance to him. You know, I think Shin is the you know Balin's Padawan. She's wouldn't be shocking if she perhaps turns back to the light or goes a little bit gray. We'll see. But yeah, I'm feeling really good. Um, yeah, I'm excited for these next eight episodes. Also, notably, this Ahsoka premiere debuted 9 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday night. The show will be moving to, I believe it's Fridays or Thursday nights moving forward. I hope they stick with the 9 p.m. timing versus a like midnight West Coast, 3 a.m. Eastern thing that Disney had been doing, Netflix continues to do. You don't have to overthink it. Follow the HBO, have a dedicated time that people always know and remember, and also dedicate time that people around the world, or at least around various time zones, will congregate to and, and flock to, and you can get people engaged. The whole midnight and after midnight debuting of series, and thus people watch the show at all different times over a 24-hour period, that doesn't really serve the show well, you know? So I really hope they stick to the 9 p.m. launch. They should. We'll see. But yeah, that's Ahsoka. First two episodes. Very excited to keep watching this. I have a really good feeling about it. Uh, but let me know how you feel about the Ahsoka premiere. What was your favorite aspect about it? What are you looking forward to seeing and having answered, etc.? And for more TV reviews, more Star Wars, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, so that's going to do it for the pod this week. Again, look out for my Studio Ghibli film rankings next week. And then two weeks from that, I'll be catching up, talking Olivia Rodrigo, V from BTS, James Blake, What We Do in the Shadows, the One Piece live-action Netflix series. Burn a Boy dropped an album I missed. I'm pretty sure Drake will have dropped for all the dogs by that point. Bottoms, the new comedy film. A lot of stuff I'm going to catch up on. So make sure you subscribe, do all that, and I'll see you soon. Yeah.